You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I have secret projects. Uh, it started a few years ago. I wanted to avoid getting wrapped up in the kind of day-to-day political events and then just get taken off the path of doing some normal reading about history and politics and keeping up with that. So the Revolutionary War, for instance, is an area of constant but sometimes quiet study. Sometimes it comes up with contemporary issues. Sometimes it doesn't, but I continue to read on that. I have a whole underground project on the Soviet Union. It's about the fall of the Soviet Union, but also mixing in what life was actually like. So I've been at that project really since 2010. It's been a long time, and I just hope one day to be able to release it in some form, maybe on the premium cast at some point. So it should be understood that Reagan is simply one of those projects. If you understand him, his presidency, you understand really the beginning of today's polarized politics in America. He's a figure that's revered on the right, despised by the left. It's almost two absolutes. And both could be accused of some cherry-picking of examples to reach their conclusions about him. Reagan's misunderstood, and so I decided to mix both the historical documented Reagan, the kind of standard narrative that's known, and a few of the mythological points of both left and right about Reagan. But since he is not a universal American Reagan, but rather an image of Reagan divided up in pieces, you might say, by the very divisions of the country, I decided to look at all of it. The original name, so these dozen Ronald Reagans walk into a bar, I kind of abandoned and just kept a dozen Ronald Reagans. And it's also a moving image over time with a bit of nostalgia added at certain points. So thus, uh, a dozen Ronald Reagans, that's how it came out. I figured about 12 boxes was enough. You probably could make more. There was a time I was thinking about 20. There was a time that I was thinking about 10. 12 just seemed to fit right to where... You covered everything. What are some of them? The conservative Reagan, the tax cutter, but then the tax raiser, the Reagan who delegated to others, the Reagan who thought deeply about issues and made individual decisions. The liberal lever, and this is where I think it's important. That's why it's so critical to discuss Reagan, because you find one example of Reagan doing anything, and it's enough to go out there and score some major points in today's political debates, no doubt about it. And sometimes, with good reason, sometimes maybe not. To do all this, it took a lot of digging, and so I'll identify some of the sources. Richard Reeves, Lou Cannon, H.W. Brands all did books about Reagan's presidency, and in the case of H.W. Brands, it's about his entire life. Lou Cannon's book just focuses 
on his presidency. It's called A Role of a Lifetime. Lou Cannon was a Sacramento-based reporter who followed Reagan as governor and on forward. So he really is a a good source. He had a lot of access to Reagan over his time. He's fairly objective. Even people on the right don't take too much issue with him. But he also doesn't sanitize things or write overly, in an overly heroic way. In fact, the entire meme of a role of a lifetime is that Reagan is kind of an actor president and viewed the presidency as a great role, which is not a meme that those on the right would, would enjoy very much. So you can kind of see... Uh, where he's coming from. I do think it's balanced. It's also a very large book, and he covers everything. Whereas Richard Reeves has a lot of dialogue and a lot of memos and things that Reagan was doing at the time. Reeves has done books on Kennedy and on Nixon, which are like day-by-day, minute-by-minute books. His book on Kennedy covers the thousand days that he was president. Really like a minute-by-minute look, and that's kind of his treatment. And that's good in some ways, but I think there's some things that are missed in the Reeves book, but it's definitely good for some color. The Invisible Bridge by Rick Perlstein, of course useful for picking up some of the Governor Reagan and the Candidate Reagan uh, in between his race for the presidency in 76 and 1980. Tear Down This Myth by William Bunch, I think a needed counterweight to some of the nostalgia about Reagan and some of the avid support on the right that he experienced. Uh, it's also a critical book, too, so we can't, everything has to be taken with a bit of a grain of salt. But it, while it's, uh, while Bunch is critical of Reagan, he's not overly So um, he actually does defend him on some points, but he's really not so much trying to tear down Reagan, but tear down the myths about him. So that provides an interesting uh, book, and he makes some points with which make up some of the arguments that are in the cast. Then you get into the memoirs, and I think they're uh, Tip O'Neill, James Baker, George Schultz, Mike Deaver, Ken Alderman, Don Regan, Ron Reagan Jr., Mikhail Gorbachev, David Stockman, Ben Kramer's uh, What It Takes, which contains a lot of biographical information from George H.W. Bush's point of view. George H.W. Bush hasn't written an autobiography, unlike so many others. David Priest, the president book, the um. And in addition to those memoirs, you have the diaries of Ronald Reagan himself, which I've used sparingly, but have used. David Priest's The President Book, The President's Book of Secrets. Um, David's a listener to the show, and his book is, is excellent, just kind of a perspective of national security briefers about how they interacted with presidents. So it reveals a lot about Reagan from that point of view by people who weren't intending to give you a book about Ronald Reagan or to tell you much about him personally. Uh, Showdown at Gucci Gulch, which talks about the tax reform bill of 1986. Numerous contemporary newspaper articles, journal articles, um, information from Cato and the Heritage Association, information from social justice groups, history websites, Time and Newsweek articles. All of this 
is the intention to create a powerful wall of knowledge to deliver the subject to most people in a very rounded way, zigzagging a little bit between arguments, not minding to spend a little bit of time in a theoretical zone of somebody's argument. For instance, you know, Reagan actually um, raised taxes a lot and then proving the point and coming back to a more weighted discussion of it. Well, that's true. Cut taxes probably more in total dollars. But there was no absolute stance against tax cutting, as some might have you believe. That's what you do. You need a lot of knowledge to do that. You need a lot of perspective, too. Because we're dealing with an exceptional communicator as our subject in this one, I needed evidence of the actual delivery. If I were to just read from a paper what Reagan said, and I do that in a few points in the cast, you know, it lacks that kind of meaning and that sense that this was a communicator that could sway people, that was funny in some cases and could persuade and, and speak to average people because some of the quotes still hold up. Some of his statements are still some of the funniest things you might have ever heard a president say, and yet it's even more meaningful when you go back to the time and it was a surprise to the people listening. Um, therefore, I do relay some of the direct video from YouTube or various sites of Reagan himself speaking, and as I have a little knack for imitations of certain presidents, I've probably been doing a little Reagan voice since he was president. Uh, once in a while, I will speak in his voice. Throughout the telling of the major episodes in the Reagan presidency, I worked to try to hit on the dozen Ronald Reagans examples of all of those characteristics and work in examples always engaging in what I would call overproving in political issues. When something's contested, I run into this on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics all the time. When something's contested, people sometimes will say, God, that was a really long cast. It's really dense. There's a lot there. And it's like, well, because when things are contentious in politics, you don't just want to go out there with one point real quick and then say, thank you, the end. Because these are issues that are debated and both sides have argument, counter-argument, argument, counter-argument. So you want to make sure to get into that a bit. And so I engage in what I call overproving on points so that I don't fall to just kind of the hen wave of one ideology or another and have people stop listening. You can't just say the economy was great under Reagan. You have to point out the multiple dimensions of what an economy is. And so I researched everything from poverty rates to income mobility to actual GDP to things like the stock to gold ratio and a lot of statistics and just to give you everything. So you have in episode three where we delve into the economic performance of the Reagan administration, that multidimensional economic look. We don't just say, hey, when Reagan started his presidency, the GDP was this. And when he left in 1989, the GDP was this. Of course, that analysis would reveal an upward trend, but there's so much more, too. So uh, 
we do our best to do that. The research started last summer, so about six months before I aired an episode. On a large topic like that, I like to just read a lot freely before I start to note anything, before I start to write. I think you want to have a baseline understanding of the topic so that as things come up later in discussion, you can make a quick comment from something else you read or just kind of have a good foundation to be able to know where things are. Oh, that's right. Deaver talked about this. Jim Baker talked about this. Oh, this is something Tim O'Neill actually liked. Um, so you you want to do some of that. The only time I would take notes in the initial six months is, and I do this quite often, if I was at a public library and didn't own the book. Uh, so I do a lot of that. Uh, most of my history can beat up your politics. There's references. I always try to include references from physical books, whether it's on Google Books or something I got from the library, my own bookshelf. But uh, still using public libraries quite often. I've been asked, what did I learn during the uh, the making of a dozen Ronald Reagans that's interesting. Well, must admit I'm recording this unfinished. I haven't finished yet the Cold War episode, and I haven't finished the Conclusions episode, but I have a pretty good idea where I'm going with those and have already done some of the reading. Reagan, the man that I knew because I was alive during his presidency, albeit a younger person. Uh, the person I knew as a historical figure was not the Reagan that I found after the research, quite frankly. Uh, he wasn't incredibly different, but he was a little different. He is by no means an uber-conservative in practice, certainly not by the standards of 2016. His rhetoric was in that direction, though, focused on the taxpayer and the taxpayer's wallet, focused on welfare and the like, how much money was coming from wallets to pay for various government programs and welfare and roads and things like that. But always he recognized the needs for basic programs overall and not interested in just making political points. He's a confusing politician because I don't think he should have been one. His incredible skills pushed him past others who made politics their career, especially that common archetype of, you know, the overambitious lawyer who makes sort of great speeches, but it's always talking at someone. It's always proving something and not always talking to someone. Because of his communication skills, he was successful as a governor and got a name for himself within the GOP party, and that elevated him. He was quite different, though, from your standard politician, your overambitious, maybe a bit egotistical person. And that comes out. Um, I was asked once, this person had indicated that uh, they didn't like Reagan very much, but they were too young to know. And I said, well, you know, I think if you were to meet him, you would. Um, and, and, and the response was, yes, I'm sure he'd be fun to have a good beer with or something. And and putting aside the fact that a, uh, he might have a beer, it would be rare, rare. I mean, his father was an alcoholic. He didn't stop drinking, but it wasn't something he was 
all that interested and maybe a little afraid of. Um, many a cocktail party at the White House. He was holding something in his hand for hours, swirling it. Uh, but um, put that aside. Yeah, I think yeah, you would you would you would be fine even as a political opponent. But unlike someone like Bill Clinton, who everyone who meets him seems to say, look, this guy is incredibly charming, and he kind of looks right into your eyes and talks just to you, you know, and, and you're kind of being charmed. But he's doing the talking, I think, with Reagan is much more of listening, and um, you would be doing, you would be kind of pulling things out of him, and that's the way people describe him personally. And that is a, probably a surprise. I, I think that... Back in the day, I was always thinking this was a guy who always knew what to say and said it, right? Uh, a couple more things. It, I believe that in the 1980s, there was a lot more focus on the age, the fact that he was out of it. Uh, there was a lot of questions whether he was just some kind of human robot that would be kind of fed scripts and would read them and not really in control of anything. And I think the evidence in a form, again, kind of using that zigzag argument, comes out that, you know, that really wasn't the case. I mean, where some of his best speeches were written in his hand. He did have a few people in the communications office helping out, but some of the best speeches were written in his hand. And... um I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off. An eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. While he did have a team running the White House, a better team in the beginning than in the end, uh, he also made calls. He made decisions. There were, obviously, Iran-Contra being the most prominent example, subordinates who were able to work around him or take advantage of his delegation or advantage of his very broad statements that he would make. So, for example, Reagan would walk into... um, a meeting very early on and say, well, he didn't have much time, but he would say, you know, let's make sure we get communism out of Central America. Well, you know, those kind of general statements made by a president with a tendency to delegate signal to subordinates where he was going, but they also could open up for a greater, um, for too loose a control over the policy to where someone said, well, my commander in chief just told me what he wanted. I'm going to make that happen. It's interesting because he was enormously successful in terms of the communications, but you do see another side of it. And I saw that reading Jim Baker's book, and 
You know, Baker was the chief of staff for a very popular president, so why did he want to leave? And you see that one of the reasons he wanted to leave, of course, like anybody in Washington, he wanted one of the cabinet positions to gain a little power, a little authority. You know, chief of staff is still working for the president. It's not the same as running your own department of the federal government. But that wasn't the only reason. I also felt that he endured the stress that a president like a Reagan creates. So for some subordinates, it's like, this is great. This guy makes these general statements, then leaves the room. We can do what we want. For someone like Jim Baker, who likes things run efficiently, it was a nightmare and very stressful. Very stressful, and he lasted one term. Oh, there are little things that have come up in that cast, too. One of them, I think, that I kept going back to is, just like I've talked about with the 1920s, how bad economically the beginning of the 1920s were, which puts into perspective all the kind of like hotsy-totsy economic uh, freedom that went on later and the, the dancing and the swing and the uh, the jazz age and, and all of that. Um, I think the 80s also, especially in the early part, that 82 recession and the few recessions you had in, in 80 and 81 under Carter were large. You see the term, the worst since the Great Depression, that's used a lot because each recession that hit in the United States tended to be the worst since. Um, 82 was pretty bad, and it was a big loss of manufacturing jobs, and it was kind of like sticking it to some of the blue-collar workers that Reagan had acquired in his coalition. Not all of it is can be blamed on his policies. There's a lot going on in, the, in in that time, but factories closing, and really that Springsteen line, these jobs are going, boys, and they ain't coming back. In 82, you really feel it. It's not just a temporary layoff, but those the factory is closing down somewhere else. And so um, the early 80s really were rough. Now, it got better, and it did, uh, you know, the economy got better during this period, and what we remember is probably the later portion. This project, unlike any other, is enormous in scope, and I think that the only thing comparable that I've done is the Neville Chamberlain Umbrella Man episode. That was difficult. On 2014, I spent an awful lot of time on that, again, trying to get the point, counterpoint, to make sure the bases are covered. And since it was also an experience in British history, which I know a little bit about but had to had to freshen up on, that one was enormously difficult. And my joke was that I felt like uh, I was... Uh, Neville Chamberlain's roommate for the summer, and he was becoming an annoying roommate. <laughs> I wanted to get rid of him. But um, with Ronald Reagan, it's similar. I think these large projects are a drag, especially as, you know, engaging in a, there's a political season going on in 2016. There's so much other things to talk about, but still, I think it's worth it. And you've noticed I've spread these episodes over time because it's the only way to physically do it a lot of research and a lot of work and it's a big scope and so if i were to cut and just talk about the first couple of years in reagan's presidency and you're going to miss a lot of the stuff that happens later or if i was just to talk about a few events um i think you'd miss a lot of the truth about that time and and what was going on and what to say about the political ghost of an image that's been created in american minds today 
Thanks for listening, and thanks for subscribing to the Premium Podcast. This really does help. We have expenses, um, three different websites that make up uh, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. We need room for all of those megs of uh, the MP3s. <laughs> and there's a blog site as well as a premium site and a standard website. A microphone, soundboards, things like this. There's a, there's a lot of costs. And so the premium podcast helps to support the program. Also, help, I also believe that you'll appreciate the content that you'll get. The episodes like this, or, you know, I kind of call it the yellow legal pad where I'm kind of opening up a bit and, and showing how it's done. And maybe even if there's some extra information that was left out of a cast, you'll hear more about it. Thanks for listening.